great music to add to the Christmas Eve service, and what a meaningful song. Thank you, Bill, and certainly thank you, Jenny. And Annie Riddle is um, helping us out on the flute. Is it the flute? Yeah. Shows my musical knowledge. <laughs> the flute tonight, and of course, Fashion Elaine. Thank you very much. I want to read from Luke chapter 2 here as I begin this uh, message. Luke chapter 2, and then we're going to park and talk about the shepherds and the angels for a few moments, then come right back to the gospel, and then go into Silent Night, and then we all go home. So that's kind of the order, and we can't skip to the end, so we'll start with Luke 2 here. Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And of course, there's plenty to talk about. Did I forget to turn my mic on? I think I did. Fortunately, maybe one of these other mics. Maybe that's better. Thank you. Steve uh, went back there and I noticed. And anyways, so we won't start over, but we were talking about Luke 2, 1 through 7. So in Luke 2, 1 through 7, we see, you know, Mary come with her betrothed with Joseph to Bethlehem. And Jesus, baby Jesus, is born there in the little town of Bethlehem. It says there was no room for them in the inn. What it likely really means is no, no, no one had a guest room available for them. Everybody was traveling. Everybody was traveling to get there for the census. You know, there was a prophecy, Malachi 5.2, that led them to Bethlehem. And in this particular context, in this place, Jesus, uh, the, the Lord of heaven, you know, God caused this census to take place to get them to Bethlehem, where baby Jesus was to be born, where God was going to take on flesh. Today, in the next few moments, I want to talk to you about the ordinary shepherds meeting the extraordinary angels. And then they go from the angels to visit the more extraordinary Jesus. The angel says to the shepherds, this will be a sign unto you. Because the angels visit the shepherds and they say, how will we know? How will we know what this miracle is? This will be a sign unto you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. So let's get into this here. Just think with me for a moment. If the president of the United States was coming to visit Youngstown, who do you think would get the message first? I don't think I would be the first to know. Now, I could be wrong, but I have, you know, I'm not on, you know, the president's top calls to make when visiting Youngstown. And I would bargain, I could be wrong, but I would think that none of you would be the first to know either. You know, and with all due respect to the retail establishments in the city and the factories and industry, I don't think they would be the first to know. I think the mayor or state representatives or or Congress representatives would be the first to know that the president, pick your president, it doesn't have to be this president, I'm not making a political statement here. If the president was coming to visit Youngstown, I would think the mayor's office would know first. And from the mayor's office, it would go to the police forces, the fire departments, the EMTs, maybe city workers, to make sure they could get the route plan in which he would take, to make sure things would be safe. And... You know, I've shared a little bit about this illustration with some of you before, but I'm an expert on this because I used to watch the show Madam Secretary. 
And if you've ever watched that show, it's about uh, T.A. Leone plays the Secretary of State, and anywhere the Secretary of State goes, she has to have a, a motorcade. She has to have a Secret Service detail. They have to make preparations. They have to close roads down. They have to be ready to keep the Secretary of State safe. Anywhere uh, the President goes, and it was the, that, that show was the first time I heard the acronym POTUS, stands for President of the United States. Anywhere the President goes, same thing. Motorcade, Secret Service detail, they have to have, every, have everything ready. 2013, I was coming back from Cincinnati. We were going up Interstate 71. All of a sudden, everything's fine. They close down Interstate 71. Why are they closing down the interstate? We get off. Later, we found out the President was coming through that route. They had to close down the interstate for the president. I also am more of an expert on this subject because I also watch the show Blue Bloods. I still watch that. And in that case, Tom Selleck plays the police commissioner of New York City. Anywhere he goes, he has a motorcade. He has a detail. They're, they're ready for him. Anytime a dignitary comes into New York City, the police commissioner is notified. You know, they have to get things ready. But you know what we notice is Jesus did not enter the world that way, did he? Jesus entered the world in total humility. No one knew. Everybody was going about their day-to-day -day business while Jesus is entering the world in a small little town called Bethlehem. It's a tiny little town. Bethlehem. It was one of those little towns, you know, where today there'd be like one stoplight or maybe no stoplights. And you'd have to remind yourself, slow down to 25 miles per hour. You're going to get a speeding ticket in Bethlehem. I don't know if it's really like that. Haven't been there. Hope to go someday. Not yet. But, you know, it was a small little town. And Jesus enters there in total humility. Certainly when the wise men, the Magi, came to town, and that's in Matthew chapter 2, you know, they said, where is the one who is to be born king of the Jews? The people knew. Nobody went. But there's no, you know, major announcements. There's no secret service detail for, you know, the anointed king of Israel, the one they've been waiting for, the Messiah, to come. It doesn't enter that way at all. So I want to talk right now first on why Jesus came. I want to, let's not separate his birth in humility from why he did come. And this is extraordinary. He came for extraordinary reasons, to save us. To save us, you know. We have to wonder, why didn't the king of kings enter the world like royalty, like POTUS, like the president? John 1.14 says that the word being God took on flesh and came into our neighborhood. That's the Eugene Peterson paraphrase. I like it. The word being God took on flesh and came into our neighborhood. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 says in summary, uh, this is my summary, that though Jesus was equal with God, he became a slave and became a human being. He became a human. He became a servant. He took on, you know, he came in total poverty and went to the cross. Jesus, totally equal with God, fully God actually. Coexistent, co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Coexistent, co-eternal for all of eternity, eternity past. And he comes down. And if you look at Philippians 2, 5 through 11, why did he come? He came to save us. Because we couldn't save ourselves. We needed salvation from our sins. It's a word we don't like to use much today, do we? The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They knew that certainly in Old Testament times. Most of us know it today, too. We needed a Savior. They're waiting for a Savior. So Jesus came in total humility to live and die for us. Jesus sympathized with us in our weaknesses. But more than sympathized, he took our place when he grew up and went to the cross. 
Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, another one of my favorite passages about this. And this is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase once again. It says, every priest. Now, this is talking about the priest in the Jewish sacrificial system, in the Old Testament Jewish system. Every priest goes to work at the altar each day. And they offer the same old sacrifices year in and year out. And never makes a dent in the sin problem. Every day they're making the sacrifices, but they never make a dent in the sin problem. As a priest, because Hebrews would say that Jesus is our great high priest, the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice. As a priest, Christ made a single sacrifice for sins. It was his life. And that was it. And he sat down right beside God and waited for his enemies to cave in. You know why Jesus sat down after making the sacrifice? Because his work was done. He sat down at the right hand of God. That's the authority place because his work was done. He made the once for all sacrifice for our sins. Hebrews continues. It was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person. Perfect sacrifice by a perfect person. That's Jesus. To perfect some very imperfect people. And that's you and me and everyone that lives. By that single offering, he did everything that needed to be done for everyone who takes part in the purifying process. Let's think and consider, you know, how Jesus entered the world. This was the ordinary. He entered the world in an ordinary way, didn't he? Actually, in total humility, we talked about that. He was, you know, born in a stable, laid in basically a feeding trough. The stable might have been a cave. You know, we can talk about that another time. But he was born in a very ordinary way. He's born in an ordinary way, even though he was extraordinary. You know, we, we would think that a king would come through Rome, you know, the pretty much capital of the world as, as we would think of it back then. We would think the king would come through Jerusalem. He didn't come that way. We think maybe the king would come through Alexandria. Alexandria, Egypt was the intellectual capital of the world. Alexandria, Egypt had a modern library, you know, a massive library that was one of the biggest libraries of the ancient world until it burned. And now we get a lot of historical references through what was left after it was burned. You would think a king would come through some area like that. Jesus didn't come that way. He didn't come that way at all. In Luke 2, 1 through 7, we see Jesus born of a virgin. He was born in poverty. He was born less than ordinary in humility. Now let's look at Luke 2. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through um, 14. I'm reading from the paraphrase of the message once again. There were sheep herders. Those would be shepherds. There were shepherds camping in the neighborhood. This is after Jesus is born. These shepherds are camping in the neighborhood. They had set night watches over their sheep. Suddenly, God's angel stood among them, and God's glory blazed around them. And they were terrified. And I think we would be as well. I mean, they're just doing their business, doing their job, you know, just at work. Just a normal everyday evening being a sheep herder. And all of a sudden, it says, suddenly, don't miss that word, an angel stood among them. And this is not an angel like we picture in our paintings and our little statues and stuff. You know, we make these angels look very timid. Angels were warriors. And they were divine messengers. It wasn't some, you know, timid little... Thing like we put in our paintings. They were terrified, it says. The angel said to them, don't be afraid. I'm here to announce a great and joyful event that is meant for everybody. A great and joyful event that is meant for everybody. That includes you. That includes me. That includes everyone that has ever lived. Everyone that will ever live. The gospel is for everyone. 
It says worldwide, a savior has just been born in David's town. Now, I would think these sheep herders, these shepherds would believe this message since it's an angel coming to them, by the way. A savior has been born in David's town, Bethlehem. It was called the town of David. A savior who is Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. They're waiting for a Messiah. They've been waiting ever since Genesis 3.15, ever since Adam and Eve sinned. They've been waiting for a savior. And it says Messiah and master or Lord. And they say, the angel says, this is what you're to look for. A baby wrapped in a blanket, literally it'd be swaddling clothes, and lying in a manger. That's how you're to see the Savior. Now, I'm just wondering, you know, just put yourself in the shepherd's shoes for a minute, or shepherd's sandals, or maybe they were barefoot. I don't know. Just put yourself in their context right now for just a moment. They, do you think that they're going to expect to see a Savior, a Messiah, the Lord, as a baby in a blanket? Lying in a manger? Now, a manger, maybe a baby. You know, they said a Savior has been born. So maybe a baby. But lying in a manger? A manger is like a feeding trough. We wouldn't, we wouldn't think we would see a, a Lord, you know, the Lord, in that type of way. Jesus came identifying with the ordinary. He came identifying with the common people, with the humble. At once, the angel was joined by a huge angelic choir, singing God's praises. Glory to God in the heavenly heights. Glory to God in the highest, some translations read. Peace to all men and women on earth who pleases him. This whole angelic choir. Now imagine what that was like for these shepherds. You know, again, they're just going about their business. It's at night. One angel comes. And the angel gives a message. And then, poof, all of a sudden, a myriad of angels, thousands of angels, worshiping the Savior, worshiping the Lord, right here. Glory to God in the highest. Well, so the shepherds go, and they want to go see they want to go see what's going on. This passage is pregnant with content. Excuse the pun. We have angels. We have shepherds. We have worship. We have ordinary and we have extraordinary. We have ordinary and we have extraordinary. But notice this. The king of kings is entering the world. The savior is coming. And who was the first to get the message? The shepherds get the message first. The shepherds get the message first. Let me tell you some things about shepherds. Shepherds were lower class. They were considered dirty and smelly. People did not like them because their sheep would graze on others' property. Shepherds were even the lowest class. And Jesus entered the world like a shepherd. And who did the angels go to? The shepherds. The angels went to the lowest class. The angels went to the below the common people. It's amazing. Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes, and that's how the shepherds would do it. He was shockingly, shockingly laid in a feeding trough. I mean, just imagine. Imagine asking the president of the United States to sleep in your shed. You know, if he did come to Youngstown, he's not gonna, we're not going to say, here, you can, you can sleep in my barn, you can sleep in my garage, you can sleep in your, my shed. No, that wouldn't be what happened. That's how Jesus entered the world. I heard about a pastor who wanted to drive this point home with his congregation. So he had a load of manure brought into the sanctuary so they would understand that's what Jesus' first smells were. We chose not to do that this year. <laughs> that would have to go through our trustees and stewardship team. <laughs> Shepherds would place their newborn, newborns in mangers and feeding troughs, though, by the way. Jesus identified with the shepherds. Jesus identified with the common people, with the ordinary. You know, think about who got the message first. The local police did not get the message. The royalty did not get the message. Jesus came identifying with the ordinary. 
Shepherds heard about this. They saw the extraordinary, the angel, then a myriad of angels. And then they saw the extra, extra, extraordinary, the G- Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. They went to see him. They went to worship. If you read Matthew chapter 2, Herod didn't go to see him. The common people of Jerusalem, they didn't go to see him. The chief priests, the scribes, the religious elite, they didn't go to see him. The shepherds went to see him. And later on, it was probably much later, the wise men, the magi, went to worship him. Jesus came, identifying with the common people. Most of the earth went on with their business. It was ordinary. But the angels, they knew what was going on. This was the extraordinary. This was significant, of course. And the shepherds later on knew as well what was going on. Christmas is for you. Christmas is for everyone. Jesus came for all, for everyone. He's the savior of the entire world. And by the way, that's a major point in the New Testament. Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, anyone can follow me, anyone. You know why that's significant? It doesn't have to be Jewish people. It doesn't have to be a certain tribe, a certain tongue, a certain nationality, a certain race. Jesus said, anyone can follow me, but he or she must deny his or herself Take up his or her cross and follow. Jesus offers a free gift of salvation. It is open to everyone. But he does call for us to follow. Jesus came for all. Jesus came to the ordinary, but Jesus came to do the extraordinary. He came to bring life eternal. And you know what? You and I, we couldn't do that. Because we're all sinners. We need somebody without any sin to die in our place to save us. I encourage you to walk away tonight with what John Newton wrote. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, and, uh, and later on, you know, the hymn Amazing Grace. And later on, when he was near death, he said, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And hopefully, we can all walk away saying the same thing. Hopefully not, my memory is fading. But either way, we can walk away saying... I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Christ is a great Savior. That's why he came. He came to do the extraordinary, to save us from our sins. I've shared this with most of you before, some of you. We can sum up the Bible with the acronym that spells gospel. God created us to be with him. God created us to be in a relationship with him. God desires a relationship with us. We see that in Genesis 1 through 2. Adam walked with God in the Garden of Eden. But our sins, they separate us from God. We see that in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were separated from God. When we sin, we are separated from God as well. Think of it this way. You know, without sin, we were wired to God. Like electrically wired to God. But when sin comes into the picture, that wire has a short in it. The fuse in our spiritual wiring is blown. The circuit is turned off in our spiritual wiring. We are separated from God. Now, why would that be? It's because God is holy. God is totally righteous. God is totally pure, totally perfect. It's it's his being. He's too pure to behold evil. He's too pure to behold sin. Now, I know many of you might be thinking, I'm I'm not really a bad sinner. And I'm not going to argue with you. I'm sure you're perfectly good. But one sin separates us from God. And we have to compare ourselves with God's standard, not your brother or sister or neighbor's standard. We are always comparing ourselves with the people we see on the news or people we know and think, you know, I'm not a bad person compared to my brother. I'm not a bad person compared to my, you know, my neighbor, whoever. 
That's the wrong standard. We need to compare ourselves with God. And God's standard is holiness and perfection. Sins cannot be removed by good deeds. We see that in Genesis 4 through Malachi 4, the rest of the Old Testament. And, you know, that creates a dilemma. If our good works don't cover sin, how do we get to God? How do we get to heaven? And that's a dilemma, by the way, because God desires a relationship with us. God wants a relationship with us. So God solved the dilemma. God took action. It's quite logical, really. It fits quite rationally together. Paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. That's a P in the gospel acronym. Jesus went to the cross, and Jesus never sinned. He was born here, born an ordinary human being, really. You know, besides that his father was God. You know, that's the extraordinary part. And he lived 33 years of sinless life. And since Jesus never sinned, he could go and take care of our sins. If he sinned, it wouldn't work. But since he never sinned, he could go to the cross in your place, in my place. The sin offering had to be perfect. And he was a perfect substitute, the perfect offering for our sins. Imagine yourself at the foot of the cross. Jesus is on the cross. Your sins go from you to him. He took your sins upon himself. He took the wrath of God upon himself. He took your hell and my hell and the world's hell. Everyone who trusts in Jesus alone has eternal life. We see that in John through Jude, the New Testament. And in life this eternal means we will be with Jesus forever. Revelation 22.5. You know, Jesus gives us eternal life, but I'm more and more convicted that Jesus gives us so much more. Jesus doesn't just give us a get-out-of-hell-free card, a, a fire insurance card, you know, that you can flash when you die. Jesus gives us life now. He gives us, John 10, 10 says, he gives us abundant life. Jesus gives us a relationship with God. Remember, God wants a relationship with you. But you were, so to speak, unplugged spiritually when you sinned. Jesus plugs that wire back in. Jesus fixes that fuse, replaces it. Jesus fixes that broken wire between you and God. You are reconnected with God when you commit your life to Jesus as Lord and as Savior. So I want to ask you this Christmas Eve, have you committed your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? Have you believed in him, but have you gone the next step and accepted him? as your Lord and Savior? Have you committed to him? The Bible uses four verbs to describe our commitment to Christ. Confess, believe, trust, commit. We're called to confess we are sinners in need of a Savior. Believe in Jesus as only Savior. Trust in him and commit to him. And this is what it really means. It means that when you commit to Christ, you are firmly making the decision to be with him. In order to become like him and to learn and do all that he says, then you arrange your affairs, you arrange your life around Jesus. Jesus is the center of your life. Jesus is the focal point. Jesus is the focus. Jesus is your Lord. Have you done that? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment, if you would. I'm going to pray here in just a moment. But before I pray, I would like to ask you that question. Really seriously reflect. Are you committed to Jesus as Lord and Savior? Is he your Lord and Savior? If he isn't, today, when we celebrate Jesus' birthday, it could also be your spiritual birthday. It can be a day when you confess you're a sinner in need of a Savior, believe in Him as the only Savior, trust in Him and commit to Him. Some of you may be committed to Jesus years ago, decades ago, but you're not living for Him. You could rededicate your life to Him today. I'm going to give a prayer. And if you feel called, if you feel the Holy Spirit convicting you to pray to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, pray this prayer with me. If you would like to rededicate your life to God today, pray this prayer with me. You're not saved by the prayer. You say by what's in your heart. The prayer is important because it's telling God what you're doing. It's telling him that you want to live for him. If that's you, pray this prayer with me. 
Lord Jesus, I confess I have sinned and missed your perfect standard. I believe in you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I believe in you, Jesus, that you're the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to heaven. I'm committing my life to you today and trusting in you as Lord and Savior. Today, Lord, I am firmly making the decision to be with you in order to become like you and to learn and do all that you say, and I'm going to arrange my affairs around you. Dear Heavenly Father, I would ask that this Christmas Eve it would be a renewal time for all of us, whether we've been a Christian for 80 years or 5 years or 2 days. May it be renewal time for all of us that we all firmly make the decision to be with you in order to become like you, to learn and do all that you say and arrange our affairs around you. Help us, Lord, following you. We need your Holy Spirit's help and guidance. We celebrate your birth. In Jesus' name, amen. If you said the prayer, receiving Christ as Lord and Savior, share it with somebody. Angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents, and we should rejoice too. We should celebrate. That's how, that's how amazing it is that God wants a relationship with you. And always, if you have questions about God or the spiritual life, talk to me. I would love to help you out. At this point, we're going to get ready for Silent Night. I'm going to invite uh, Kevin and Ryan to come forward, and, and then Jennifer and Brooklyn and Mackenzie and Mercedes, you can come forward too. They're going to help us light the candles. So... I'm going to start lighting the candles up here, and then they're going to help us uh, lighting the candles from the back.